This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. It has certainly been an up-and-down year for the European Union. We've seen uh, mass migration to countries in the region. We have seen the U.K. designate its date for leaving the EU coming up in 2019 while dealing with the issues of a hard border with Ireland. You've seen, uh, you've had uh, some citizens in some countries rise up and want more from their governments, yet we still see much of the same leadership that we saw in 2016 as well. So what is ahead for the EU come this year? Daniel Kelman uh, is a professor of political science at Rutgers University. He's also chair in European Union politics. He joins me here in the studio. Eric Jones, professor of European studies and international political economy at Johns Hopkins University. Joining us on the phone, he's also director of European and Eurasian studies at the school. Dan, great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Thanks for having me, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Eric. Great to have you with us as well. Well, great to be with you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so after all that happened in 2017, Dan, what are you most watchful for going into the new year? Well, there, there are a number of things, really. I think in a, in a sense, some of the big uh, issues will remain the same. Brexit will remain big on the agenda. Um, efforts to reform the Eurozone, particularly once we get a new German government in place, you're really going to see, I think, uh, Merkel and Macron try to revive the so-called Franco-German engine and push the EU forward uh, on Eurozone reform and other issues like collective defense. And um, at the same time, I think there'll there'll be a lot of uh, sort of preparation and position taking politically uh, around some of the elections that will be coming up the following year in 2019 in European Parliament, for instance. Eric? Yeah. What are you most watchful for heading into 2018? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm living here in Italy, so I've got the Italian elections coming up. That's going to happen on March the 4th. And we're looking at that in terms of trying to understand not just what's going to happen in Italian politics, but also what that means for the Italian bond markets. We're also looking at the, the changes in the purchasing behavior of the European Central Bank as it tries to slow down its acquisition of sovereign debt instruments. And that could have some big market implications as well. Um, the, the last thing that we're looking at is this amazing growth in Europe. I mean, we've, yeah. European Eurozone economy has outperformed, and we're going to see if that continues to hold. I guess that is that from everything that happened in Europe in the last year, that's a very good piece to what we've seen in uh, in Europe over the last few months, especially is this shift to growth in that region after all the economic issues that have uh, that have fallen in that territory over the last five years or so. Yeah, definitely. And even though the politics have been very difficult, uh, the sort of silver lining lately has been has been the return of growth and uh, upswing in employment. Uh, the commission president, Juncker, is uh, fond of saying lately uh, that it's a good time to fix the roof when the weather is good. And, and what he has in mind there is that this is the opportunity now with the economy recovering to address some of the sort of flaws in EU governance. Eric? Well, I think you know. I think Juncker is optimistic on that uh, on that score. The the thing that we haven't really talked about is the difficulty that Germany is having forming a government, yeah. and without clear German leadership and and without a careful partnership between France and Germany, the likelihood that we're going to get significant reform, no matter how good the weather is. Uh, is is pretty small. Well, well, for people that really don't follow it closely, Eric, t- take us through for a second and really, if you can, help people understand the issues that are involved in Germany in trying to form this this government for them. 
Well, I think, you know, the, the easiest way to think about it is that everybody who's joined into a big coalition with Angela Merkel uh, and her Christian Democratic parties uh, ha- has lost votes at the end of that experience. And, and now that everybody's been burned, and in the Social Democrats' case, they've been burned twice, um, that it's very challenging for her to find a coalition partner. And, and so there are a whole bunch of policy issues that we would, we would look at, policy issues related to migration and Eurozone governance and, and also spending inside Germany and the, the prospect of a minimum wage, that kind of a thing. Um, but, but, but even before we get to those policy issues, you have to deal with the political reality that mainstream parties are losing support to populist insurgents, and anyone who does a deal with Angela Merkel is, is pretty much condemned to lose support as well. Yeah, and I would uh, I would just add to that that uh, as Eric just mentioned there at the end, you have these populist parties uh, gaining support, in particular in Germany. Of course, the the big change was the entry into the Bundestag of the Alternative for Germany, the AfD yeah. party, and with them getting a chunk of the votes and them being viewed quite rightly as an unacceptable coalition partner, it just becomes that much more difficult in terms of the math, right, to get yeah. to fifty percent of the seats that you want because Merkel could, of course, govern with a minority government. There's nothing legally prohibiting that. But she has you know, made it clear that she really wants to avoid that because she views that as unstable. So the, the talks that are going to be beginning in the coming week are, once again, with uh, the Social Democrats, where they're going to talk again about forming a new grand coalition. But as Eric rightly said, Social Democrats are very wary of that uh, because of their past experience and their shrinking vote share. So... Basically, now we're up against the question of whether they, um, despite that experience, the Social Democrats agree again to go in coalition. Otherwise, we may be up against even the possibility of new elections, right, Uh, which uh, is something Merkel wants to avoid. I would still put my money on a grand coalition, but I think um, there's no way to be sure for the next few weeks. But if you have so many entities that are involved in the process, and as you mentioned, you've got the, you know, the AFD, which is added into the mix as well. It, it, how, how tough is it to try and put together a coalition with, when you have so many uh, of the proverbial chefs that are in the kitchen right now? Well, it's very tough. I mean, of course number of countries in Europe who have uh, more fragmented party systems with lots of small parties have more experience with this. But, yeah. uh, you know, this is a, you know, a newer phenomenon in Germany where you've had this um, you know, entry of new parties recently and therefore the kind of possibilities of which coalitions you have to consider, mm-hmm. right, yeah. has enlarged. And it's, um, yeah, it's a new chess game for Merkel. I guess uh, Eric also uh, on the agenda will be watching to see what happens in Spain uh, in the uh, in the weeks and months to come. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the elections in Catalonia provided an inconclusive outcome in terms of, of pacifying the country. We don't think that Catalan separatism is going to rise up again, but we have to see what's going to happen as the, the Catalan region has to form a government of its own after the elections that took place on the 21st of December. Yeah, and I would just add one one other thing, another region in Europe to look at for really explosive issues in the coming years, uh, to look to the, the east, in particular in the EU's tensions with Poland and Hungary. Right, right. Now, in the case of Poland, uh, just at the end of the year, the commission launched for the first time ever in the history of the EU this procedure, uh, Article 7, it's called, 
uh, where they uh, are basically asking member states to take a vote to potentially sanction Poland for its violation of uh, fundamental EU values, such mm -hmm. as the adhering to the rule of law, because of uh, the, the efforts of the government to sort of take over and pack the judiciary in Poland, right? Mm -hmm. And the Polish government has reacted um, really dismissively and uh, you know, taking this as an affront to their sovereignty and whatnot. So I think that issue really is going to uh, explode in, in the coming year. And then meanwhile, in Hungary, where you have a similar, similar populist uh, government, you also have new elections coming up. Yeah. And um, there's potential for irregularities in those elections uh, in the fall. 844 Wharton spring, is the number. 844 Wharton is the number if you'd like to join in. 844-942-7866. Daniel Kellerman from Rutgers University joining us in studio. Eric Jones from Johns Hopkins University joining us from lovely Italy today. <laughs> Boy, we, you're, you're missing out on beautiful weather, Eric, over here right now. Uh, but it, it, when you look at the the landscape of uh, uh, of Europe right now, and more so than, than just Italy. Uh, the, the names that are the most interesting to me, obviously, are two of the biggest names right now, one being Angela Merkel, but the other being Emmanuel Macron and where he can potentially kind of be that, that next face of the European Union in the years to come. Well, it would be it, it would be interesting if Macron could be the next face of the European Union. I mean, for right now, he's still got to consolidate his position as the next face of France. Right. Yeah. He's 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 been very effective in in making use of the institutions that France has it has a very different electoral system from Germany, for example, uh, and he's been very effective in in using that to consolidate control not only over the presidency but also over the parliament. Nevertheless, he's still got a big reform agenda he's got to put through, and he's got to find a, a partner to work with at the European level. So he can talk a good game on Europe, and he certainly did last autumn list a huge number of proposals that he'd like to put forward. But whether he can accomplish anything depends on whether Angela Merkel can form a government. Yeah, and it also matters, of course, which government she can form. And um, from that perspective, uh, you know, for Macron, it would be better if she teamed up with Social Democrats, most likely, because you know, uh, some of the other partners she was looking yeah. at, uh, including the Free Democratic Party, would have uh, really uh, thrown co more cold water on some of his plans. And uh, I, I think you know, some of his uh, ambitious ideas are f simply not going to happen, a huge Eurozone budget and some of these ideas. But others, I think, uh, assuming Merkel does get a coalition in place and uh, you know, keeps her hands on, on the steering wheel there in Germany, I think she will want to uh, move forward with him and accommodate some of his ideas. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios in uh, Philadelphia, along with Daniel Kellerman of uh, Rutgers University, mm -hmm. Eric Jones of Johns Hopkins University, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. There's also, Eric, been a, a lot written in the last week or two uh, going into the end of the year about the relationship between uh, the EU and, and the the United States and where that's going to go because of kind of, at times, a frosty relationship with President Trump. I think that's, been, that's a nice segue from what Macron is proposing because of the big raft of proposals that, that he put out. The one that has, has got the most resonance, at least in Brussels, has been to restart discussion of forming a coherent European 
defense and security identity. This wouldn't replace NATO. But as Angela Merkel put it last May, um, Europe can't take the United States for granted anymore. Uh, and, and in that sense, needs to do more in, in order to be able to defend itself. And, and that would also, I think, address one of the main concerns raised by the Trump administration. So there's a potential for Europe to, to move in a way, in security terms at least, that will make the relationship, uh, relationship better, but also make themselves more, more independent at the same time. Yeah, I would agree with Eric on that. And I think uh, really what we've seen uh, is probably what's going to turn out to be a permanent shift in transatlantic relations, even after the Trump administration. I think it's, uh, you know, once uh, the the trust and the ability to sort of take a relationship for granted um, is gone, you know, that's, that's hard to restore. And so I think... Uh, that indeed uh, security and defense cooperation is going to be one of the the leading areas where they move forward together in the next few years. And there's a related issue that isn't so much touched by the transatlantic relationship, but I think in addition to security and defense in military terms, we're going to see more European cooperation on border control uh, also in the coming year. That's going to remain high on the agenda and reforming that system. How how important is that piece to it as well, especially in Europe with all that has gone on there in the last few years? We're looking at the at the borders. Oh, it's it's a central issue. I mean, the the refugee crisis. Of course, the numbers have gone down in the past yeah. uh, year and a half or so, and so it's a little less in the headlines than it was. But it's still there, and the numbers can swing back up at any time, really. And they're working right now. I mean, they have already established new institutions, a European border and coast guard. It's a fledgling entity, but their plan is to ramp that up over time. But the the other big piece they they have to work out. Everyone can kind of agree we need more border security. But then you have the question, well, what do you do at the borders when asylum seekers show up, right? And for that, they need to reform the asylum system of the EU, uh, part of which is called the Dublin Regulation. They have these rules of which country should be responsible for processing and taking in and considering asylum seekers. And they've they've launched a process, uh, a a debate about reforming those rules because they're clearly inadequate at present. But there's no agreement yet. And that's going to be another tough political debate in 2018. Eric? Well, I think Dan's right. I mean, and the, the, the tricky thing to remember about the European migration problem is they actually have three different migration issues that are, that are completely uh, transformative for them. They've got the whole situation in the East, uh, particularly with Ukraine and, and the people that are coming from the former Soviet Union. Um, they've got the situation in the Middle East, which is the one that caused the big brouhaha in 2015, um, but they've got the situation in sub-Saharan Africa, and of the three, that sub-Saharan African situation is the one that is going to prove to be the most long-standing and problematic, because there's an enormous demographic change in sub-Saharan Africa, a huge number of young people with no work, and they're pushing yeah. very hard to get into Europe across the Mediterranean. They've managed to stem the flow, but but the, the cost in terms of human rights and, and the abuses that are taking place in North Africa is just incredible. So they've got to find a way to develop the sub-Saharan African region, and that goes beyond border control into development policy and foreign policy and a whole bunch of things that the Europeans need to deal with. Which is interesting because that's the one that really we haven't, I mean, you talked about how uh, the migration from from the Middle East has kind of slowed down and it isn't as much of an issue. The, the one from Africa really has not, I, I think for the most part, touched the media and, and drawn a lot of attention that, that much at all, Dan. No, I think that's right. And uh, I mean, what we've seen in the past year or so is that the uh, 
the flows have shifted, right? So there's less in the eastern Mediterranean into Greece, right? Yeah. And more going in where Eric's living there in Italy, right? And uh, also a shift in the countries of origin. So less people coming from Syria, let's say, more people coming from sub-Saharan African countries, right? And that, as Eric said, is going to continue because it's not driven just by one civil war or something like that, but by a combination of uh, demographic shifts and general poor development conditions, right? And, you know, so far, you know, the EU uh, response has been partly to try to, if, well, if we put it kind of crassly, basically bribe governments to keep their people from leaving is one element of it. Yeah. And then um, also now even working with uh, authorities where they can find them in Libya to basically keep people housed there. And that's where some of the worst human rights violations are going on that Eric mm -hmm. was describing. And, you know, the, the EU sort of has its um, hands on that and is tainted by association. And Eric, let me ask you about the, the, the status uh, there in Italy, because obviously Italy has gone through uh, its tough times in the, in the last several years. Where is Italy right now in terms of its recovery? Well, I mean, the Italian economy quite remarkably is, is strengthening far more than anyone had anticipated. The, the problem with, with Italy is not so much economics. I mean, we have a significant economic problem, particularly in terms of youth unemployment and low productivity growth. But, but the real problem is political. We have a political system that, that is roughly proportional in nature and a, uh, a population that's divided into three groups, and none of the two of which actually want to have a government together. So we're going to end up in March – uh, with three relatively equally equally sized blocks in the parliament, uh, and, and no two willing to combine to form a government, so I, I don't know how that really works itself out. Yeah, I think Italy. Uh, Eric knows much more. Uh, he's a real expert on Italy. But I would just say I think Italy is uh, really uh, just as it was in the eurozone crisis, where. Uh, the, the potential for shockwaves to come out of Italy if things had gone off the rails more. I think similarly, the potential for yeah. political shockwaves uh, to emanate out of Italy if the populists make more gains, if they're unable to form a government, uh, really could be destabilizing for Europe. What is, what is the in your mind, the, the issues moving forward? I mean, obviously, the U.K. has made its designation as to when it's going to, you know, invoke its Article 50 in, you know, in 2019. Uh, but w with this playing out, as you said before, throughout the course of 2018, what's the impact that uh, that Brexit has on the region right now, Dan? Well, first, let me just say something about, I think, the impact it'll have on the UK, which is, um, you know, it's very sad, really, because I think it's we're going to continue to see a lot of damage to the British economy as a result. We haven't, we're only seeing the beginnings of that yet, but I right. think uh, we'll see more in the coming year, uh, and we'll see more political turmoil in the UK, because basically 2018 is going to be the year that uh, you know, fiction and fantasy runs headlong into a brick wall of reality in yeah. terms of what kind of deal they can get and what the real options are. Now, in terms of its impact on the rest of the EU, I'd say, to me, the most surprising thing about the whole develop set of developments around Brexit has been the unity uh, that the EU has maintained, right? Sure. Yeah. Now, we... We've seen recently, interestingly, a little effort by um, the British to uh, basically a uh, play with their uh, Polish allies and the Polish government trying to get a kind of quid pro quo. We will 
try to help stop EU action against you, Poland, for your rule of law violations if you help us get a better deal on Brexit. Right. That's, that's one sort of effort to break that unity. But frankly, I don't think that will go anywhere. I think the EU will r- remain united uh, in the face of this. I mean, in terms of repercussions, the one country that's likely to be hurt the most is Ireland, right, economically yeah. from Brexit. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think, you know, surprisingly, the, the bloc uh, looks like it may emerge more unscathed than many of us had predicted. Which is interesting, Eric, because I, I think there have been quite a few conversations about whether or not there were, you know, cracks within the EU and whether or not they were going to continue to grow. This seemingly is saying that, uh, that that's not going to happen. Well, I think that's right. The cracks in the EU are not about uh, are not about Brexit. I mean, if yeah. there are cracks in the EU, there's a big east-west divide that that Dan could tell you about about rule of law and, and constitutional values. Uh, there's a north-south divide on on macroeconomic issues. But in terms of the the Brexit negotiations themselves, I think there's a, a remarkable degree of unity across the European Union, and I would expect that to hold all the way up into March of 2019. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. You, you've seen the EU leaders really resist um, uh, almost all entreaties from the British to sort of have side negotiations yeah. or cut special deals, work with traditional allies. Instead, they've uh, left uh, Michel Barnier, the lead negotiator for the yeah. EU, firmly in charge. He's got his clear mandate, and he's pursuing. And um, they, they uh, you know, consistently you know, let him speak on behalf of them as a unity. And really, they have the upper hand in the negotiations at every stage so far. So what do you think this is going to end up meaning for the U.K.? Let's, yeah, I mean, obviously, there, it, it's hard to look out five years, ten years. But you mentioned that, I mean, this is just the beginning of some of the economic problems that we could be seeing from the U.K. coming up in the years to come. Well, yeah. I mean, first, let's be clear. It's no one's saying it's going to become like a developing country. It's not right, going to be yeah, economic right, catastrophe. Right. But, you know, they could easily lose a few percent of GDP, right, uh, right. in the coming decade uh, over this. I think you know, really what's going to happen in 2018 is there, the, the UK government, the Theresa May's government, has made incompatible promises to different parties I- involved. So they've promised things like, we're going to leave the single market and the customs union. Yeah. And simultaneously, they've promised... Uh, we're not going to have a border with Ireland, right, between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And yep. they promise we're not going to have a border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain and the Irish Sea somewhere. But those things are incompatible, right? You you can't do both, right? And uh, we could pick out more uh, of these incompatible promises. So pretty soon, we're, that's what I was talking about, uh, of the fantasy hitting the reality, yeah. that real choices are going to have to be made and the trade-offs are going to become obvious, uh, more obvious to voters. Does Theresa May survive 2018? Mm, I doubt it. P- possibly 2018. Only if I think what's happening now politically is, yeah, as more people, uh, even in our own party, see that uh, the, the disaster that accompanies Brexit, they, they it's sort of like in finance where they talk about a bad bank where you uh, put all the bad assets together sure. and separate it. Yeah. It's like they're they're putting all the the negative repercussions of Brexit on her shoulders until it's time to cut her off and start <laughs> fresh. Eric, does she survive 2018? So I think for precisely the reason that Dan that Dan alluded to that you know nobody else wants this poison chalice so she's going to have to drink drink deeply over the coming coming year and three months. Um, this this point Dan made about about Northern Ireland is critically important in that regard. Um, Theresa May has has made these incompatible promises because she's on the one hand got a, a Democratic Ulster Party 
the <clears throat> Democratic Unionist Party that that is supporting her government, uh, not participating in it, but supporting it. On the other hand, she's got she's got the broader political situation in Northern Ireland that she has to reconcile in the interests of of the Irish government, which is one of her negotiating partners in the EU side. So she's in an impossible situation, and nobody wants to go in and and be responsible for clarifying the the ambiguities that she's created along the way. We're talking with Daniel Kellerman of Rutgers University, Eric Jones of Johns Hopkins University. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. One of the final points I wanted to bring up was there was an interesting story in the papers about um, Emmanuel Macron looking to reach out to Russia for you know greater relations in the move in in the future, Russia and the EU are still have quite a few issues that they have to to work out. So how does that dynamic play out in your mind, Dan? Well, even before getting to the the Macron comments, and by the way, uh, you know that's a tradition. Uh, many French governments have pursued, you know, trying to do business deals with governments, even if they don't have the best relations, sure. right? Yeah. But I think uh, Russia, Putin's Russia, is a, a strategic adversary of the EU, without question. And and really, you know, his regime wants to see the EU sort of dismembered and fall apart because um, he views it as a threat, really, to his regime type and yeah. the way it entices governments in Eastern Europe to follow democracy, the rule of law, these EU models. He wants them to adhere more to his uh, sort of authoritarian model. So he, you know, they really are adversaries. And I think the most dangerous thing right now is that Putin increasingly has a couple, what I would call, Trojan horses within the EU, mm-hmm. right, in, in the sense of regimes within the EU that are much more friendly to his interests. Uh, The Hungarian government under Viktor Orban being one who's cultivated close ties with Putin. And now this new government in Austria that's brought in the far-right Freedom Party, right? That party has signed a um, a sort of cooperation agreement with uh, Putin's party in Russia. So that's another case uh, uh, where we may have another government sort of doing Russia's bidding within the EU. Eric? Yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely agree with what Dan is saying about the the long term contrast and strategic interest between Russia and the EU. I mean, the, the unfortunate reality, though, is that that countries like France and Italy, in particular, they 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 can't afford not to deal with Russia over an extended period of time. And I said Italy in particular, but I could have easily said Germany. So so these countries have to find some way to to deal with Russia and this. Yeah overture that Macron is making is is one of several that have been have been mooted over recent weeks. The the question though that we we are all focusing on is how long the consensus on maintaining sanctions on Russia over Crimea and the Donbass region in the Ukraine, um, how how long that consensus is going to hold. And 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 you know one can only hope that it's going to hold at least into the summer or, or perhaps even into twenty nineteen because we need more progress on the ground in Ukraine, and we can only get that by putting pressure on Russia. Great having you both with us. Uh, Dan, great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Eric, great to have you on the phone. Enjoy Italy, my friend. Thank you very much. Great talking with you, Dan. Thank you both. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 